The opinions expressed during this program are solely the opinions of the hosts, guests, and callers. They do not necessarily represent the views of the advertisers, management, staff, or ownership of WCTC. You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. Listen here for inspiring stories from people just like you who had their wake-up call to make a bold decision and live their best life. They did it, and so can you. What are you waiting for? I'm your host, Christina Previtt. If we haven't met before, I was a divorce lawyer in New Jersey for 15 years. I'm currently the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a divorce law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I love talking to people who have overcome their fears and forged their own path in life. They had a wake-up call to make a radical change. They did it, and so can you. My guest today is Dana Karpinski. On June 7th, 2018, at the age of 33, Dana was diagnosed with ALL, an aggressive form of leukemia. After undergoing chemotherapy, radiation, and a bone marrow transplant, Dana is in remission. Dana is here to talk about her experience living with leukemia and how this experience has profoundly changed her life. Welcome, Dana. Hello. Thank you so much for coming today. Um, So I'm just going to start out with... Um, a sentiment that I've had shared with me at different times. And that is that not maybe not everyone's life, but often there's an event that happens to someone where there's everything that happened before that. And then there's everything that came after. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that for you, that was something that occurred on or, or around June 7th, 2018. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Can you tell us, what that was? So, I mean, leading up to my official diagnosis, which you're right, was on the 7th of June of last year, um, I just felt like I was there. I was going through this stressful time and whether it was, you know, uh, the breakup um, in a relationship I had and um, thinking about changes in my job. I just, I, I, one of the biggest things that I could take away from this total experience, and I'm definitely still living it in full um, is to always trust your gut. And I knew in my gut that there was something going on um, leading up to my diagnosis. And um, when I was officially told that I had acute lymphocytic leukemia, um, you know, there were several other tests leading up to um, that day. But on that day, it was kind of like, oh, my God, this is so much more than I thought it was going to be. And where do I go from there? What were the things that you experienced before that? Like you said, there were some signs. Yeah. So um, on it was President's Day weekend, 2018, I had a lymph node on the bottom right side of my jaw that and I wasn't even sure if it was a true lymph node. I just felt this like kind of bulbous thing. And I was like, what is this going on? So I called my father and I'm like, hey, is this normal? Was I ever did I ever have lymph nodes as a kid when I was sick? He goes, no, not really. Go to urgent care. Okay, fine. Went to urgent care. They thought it was like a salivary gland. And I was like, no way. This is not a salivary gland. Went to my dentist. He confirmed it. And then from that moment on, which was the end of February last year, um, I had blood tests done, which were clean. There were no like elevated white blood cell levels. Then I had an aspirated biopsy in April. It was April 4th. Um, which resulted in, which essentially is you're awake during the procedure. It's nothing truly invasive, but they go in, the doctor goes in and he removes samples through a needle. So they'll numb the area topically. They'll remove samples of the cells in that area. And then, you know, you'll have your results from the pathologist. And at that point, it was immature T cells. So at that point, I was like, okay, 
This is definitely bigger. It's not a cold. So that's what the doctor said. Yes. And did you really understand what that meant? Did you, you go home and Google it? Like, that's what I would So done? that's the one thing. And I, if anyone's listening at, that is worried about any sort of medical issue, do not Google. Yeah. <laughs> like, I spent so much time at the beginning Googling. And finally, I was like, I, I can't look at this anymore because you truly start to self-diagnose all of these situations. And it could be anything. And G- Google and, um, you know, uh, Mayo Clinic and I don't care, like, who, what, what website it is, it always leads to some form of cancer, right? Yeah. Yeah, so we yeah. always think the worst. So your heart it, it could either racing. be a headache or, you know, it's a brain tumor. Y- yeah, exactly. So at that point, I took a deep breath. My dad was really, at, at, during that time, the initial phases of leading up to diagnosis, like, you know, we, we kind of call it, we called it our gathering information stage, looking back. So that's what we called it. And he's like, just stay calm, stay calm. They know what they're doing. So once the pathology report came in, um, I was seeing an ENT at the time, and she was like, why don't we remove some lymph nodes in your neck? And they were kind of all – it was not only now on my jaw. It was all along my neckline going into my clavicle. She's like, I have an opening on Friday, Friday, April 13th. And I just looked at her, and it was like, no way are we doing any sort of surgery on Friday the 13th. So <laughs> um, at that point, I asked for uh, a name for a surgeon – and I found this fantastic guy, uh, went in and saw him on April 23rd. Um, and he's like, listen, we're going to actually go in and do a full biopsy and remove lymph nodes from your neck. And that happened on May 25th, 2018, a week later. So they removed two, two lymph nodes from my neck. I have that little scar here. Um, and on June 1st, I was told that I tested positive, the biopsy tested positive for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so I was kind of already, you know, like scared, you know, so so beyond scared. It was crazy. Um, Were you expecting that that was something that it could be? Yes. Or was that the first? Okay. Yes. So it wasn't the first time this nope. phrase had no. been used. Uh, to okay. be honest with you, um, I know it sounds really morbid and sad, but I went up and visited friends in Boston for St. Patrick's Day. And I just, I remember just telling my friend, and she's one of my best friends, my little sister was there as well. Like, this is cancer. This is not good. I just had this, like, visceral. Yeah, I just knew. And people were kind of like, eh, no, Dana, it's, it's not that. And I just, I just knew. And I wasn't trying to write my own story at that point. I just, I know my body so well. I mean, we go back with CrossFit. And I was just, I've been so in tune with my body, whether it was eating, working out. Um, just trusting my instincts. And I had this instinct way back then that something was off. Um, and, I mean, the report showed it. Yeah. We we don't listen to our bodies enough. And no. that's why I actually have to comment that when you found the lump, a lot of us, I think, and I really can't say what I would have done if I would have been as diligent as you were. I, I don't – I think a lot of us have a tendency to just go, it's nothing. I'll deal with it later. You know, I'm young. It's, you know, it's nothing. It'll just go away. And, and we kind of make excuses. Well, if it doesn't go away by, you know, next weekend, then I'll mm-hmm. make an appointment with the doctor. But you, it doesn't sound like you did that. You took it seriously from day one. Yeah. I mean, again, I there was a series of events leading up to that, you know, the relationship, breaking up, moving into a new place. So there was a, a lot of kind of internal turmoil I was feeling so I was just even more in like on guard because of that and then when I just I remember I was washing my face in the shower and I just was kind of running my hand down my chin I was like this is really weird and at that point I just 
continued to pursue it. So like I said, I saw an ENT, which had, you know, and, and all the while I was getting blood tests. And I, through this whole experience, I mean, you could, at this point in my life, you, people can poke and prod me. They can do whatever the hell they want because I've seen so much. But before that time, I'll, I remember walking into a lab core and they're like, all right, we're going to just, you know, test your blood, you know, draw a couple of vials. And I had to literally prep myself, like meditate. Sit in the chair, put an air, like a little AirPod in my one ear, start playing like music to calm me down, and look the other way as this woman was drawing blood. That wow. is how like fearful of needles I was at that point in time, and that was March. So I guess <laughs> I guess that has changed. It has since changed. I don't even know how many bags of uh, blood and and plasma and you know fluids later. It's it's certainly changed. So then tell me what happens when you get your official diagnosis. Yeah. Tell me what, if you can, I, it's probably something that's very hard to describe, but the moment the words come out of the doctor's mouth, I mean, what are you thinking? Yeah. So, um, like I said, my initial diagnosis was uh, non-Hodgkin's, which was June 1st. And I remember sitting in the room and my parents were sitting across from me and, and the surgeon's name was Dr. Tom Thomas. He's actually in Morristown. He's awesome. Uh, he you know, kind of walked in and it it was just kind of this ominous, like, you know, I don't know how those doctors do it. Between oncologists and cardiologists, they're like, they see so much, um, I hate to say it, but death and, and very, very tough situations that have to relate to patients, what's going on. And he just walked in and, and said, you know, the results from your biopsy came back and it is consistent with um, large B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I said, just so that means I have cancer. And he looked at me and said, yes, but it's treatable. And I'm going to send you upstairs today to speak with one of my colleagues who's an oncologist, and he'll be able to give you more insight. But looking back on that moment, it was just, you're just in disbelief. And I truly think I was in a state of shock for at least I mean, I rolled with the punches. I did what I had to do to get where I needed to be immediately to begin my chemo regimen. But it was almost like I was walking in this bubble. Like you always hear about people getting sick, but you never, ever think that it's going to happen to you. And when it does, you're just you're, you're shell-shocked. Totally yeah. shell-shocked. So at that point, did you kind of felt like you were in a fog? For sure. Yeah. And what's your thought process? You know, it's funny because what we left the hospital. So I saw Dr. Thomas in the morning and um, I wasn't able to see Dr. Shaw until 430 right upstairs. It was at the Carol Simon Cancer Center in uh, Morristown. And so I went upstairs or I went I knew that I was going to go upstairs later in the day. So I remember walking out of the hospital and I just looked at my mom. I said, do you want to grab a beer? <laughs> like, what are you going to do? So we went and grabbed a couple of beers, had lunch. Um, uh, two of my friends met me and two very good friends of mine. Um, and they were just like, it's going to be OK. You know, we'll, we'll get through this. Um, and we started kind of putting out the feelers to other good friends and letting them know, like, this is what happened. Here's what we're going to do. Here's where we're who's here's who we're going to meet later today. So. Immediately, it was kind of like, you know what, we're going to continue to live my life. 
Um, and we really don't have all the answers yet. So I'm not going to stop dead in my tracks. I'm going to keep living my life. Um, yep. it, but it was still very, very, very surreal. That's that's what I I try to put myself in that position, which really is impossible to do because something like that, you just can't you can't anticipate what you would think or feel if it happened to you. You can try, but I just don't think you can ever really know. Yeah. But I feel like what I would be thinking is, you know, what, so what am I, do I need to start planning to not be here? You know, like, I feel like the question I'd be asking is, you know, if this is going, if this is it, you know, how long? Mm Mm-hmm. Because it and it sounds really morbid, but I do often think to myself, like we don't know how long we have. We all think we're just going to live to be a little old lady, but you don't really know. None of us really knows, and it could be an illness, it could be a car accident. Right. It sounds really morbid, but I think so many of us don't really think about that, and we don't do the things that we really want to do in our lives because we think we have all this time. So my question for you is. Did you start thinking that? Did you start thinking, well, I still have so many things that I want to do. Am I going to be able to do them? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, to kind of follow the timeline, so I went and spoke with Dr. Shaw that afternoon. He sat with us for, gosh, I would say an hour and 45 minutes. He was phenomenal. Um, I really don't remember much of the details of what the treatment was going to look like. I knew that initially if we had just gone the full chemo route, it would have been eight months in total. Um, But I do remember him saying this. And he said, Dana, if you can take away anything from this conversation, keep in mind that my patients that do the best are the ones that remain the most positive. So I said, great. All right. He's like, (laughs) yeah. I mean, it's not going to make the situation any worse. So... um, at that point, I remember leaving the office and my parents went home. I started making phone calls to my boss, started making phone calls to my clients, letting them know the situation. Um, so so to answer your question, is was my immediate thought, oh, my gosh, am I going to die? Yes. But I didn't start planning for death yet. It was almost just like, okay, let me just start to lay the groundwork because I'm not going to be working through this. Um, it's a type of chemo regimen that's very intense, requires hospital stays. So I wasn't going to be able to do outpatient and then go into work. Um, so and then that weekend, I remember my little sister came down and we kind of just started prepping. You know, I had tests and that's when I had a bone marrow biopsy, which is very, very common for people with blood cancers. In order to understand the level of cancer in someone's um, blood, they have to go and do a bone marrow biopsy. And... Uh, that I had on that Monday, and then I was told on the 7th that I had acute lymphocytic leukemia, a very aggressive form, and most people that present with this type of cancer come in roughly around 38 to 40% of the cancer in their bone marrow. My doctor, my oncologist Hackensack, told me that I walked it at 98%, so almost literally double what most people um, present with upon initial diagnosis. So at that point, again, it was like a one-two punch, like, oh, hey, you have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. No, you don't. You have ALL. And again, the blinders just went on, and it was like, let's just 
kick this thing. And I really didn't start thinking about death really until July 4th. So it was after my first induction treatment. I was feeling really crappy from the chemo. Um, and at every 4th of July, I'm out at the beach. Yeah. And I was just kind of like, gosh, this really stinks. Like, every, and then, and then I actually, for the first time too, I thought, why me? In a world full of people, what did I do to get picked on to get this? And I let myself kind of wallow in this self pity um, for a short amount of time. And then the next day, I picked myself up, and I'm like, let's get back, let's get back to it. And for the people that don't know you, you're very healthy, right? Yeah. You are health conscious. You exercise. You try to eat healthy. Um, I don't know. You take vitamins, whatever you do, yeah. right? You're always having an eye towards, well, how can I serve my body? Right. And so I think when when someone is health conscious like that, you, I can see why, especially you would question. Right. But I, but I did everything right. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, you know, eat spinach or whatever. You know, I'm taking my vitamins, and how, how could this still happen to me? Yeah. I mean, those thoughts all ran through my head. Um, I I really tried to put my nose to the grindstone and focus on my treatment plan and just really made that my goal. It's like, let's get through this. Let's try not to take in too much because that is also my personality. It's like, you know, I would speak to people, especially when I was at work and I prior to diagnosis, it's like I was in the red before 545 in the morning. You know, my typical regimen is up at five, whether I went for a run or a spin class. And then it was like, okay, let's see how many errands I could get done before I am in by 830. And that's kind of how I was checking off my life for a while. Um, So even circling back on like perspective, oh, my gosh. Listen, I'm still very much a work in progress, but I can honestly say as much as it was super, super crappy that this happened to me, it was almost like a blessing in disguise. Whereas I don't live by the to-do lists. Trust me, I still have to-do lists, but I don't live them and let them run my life the way I used to. Um, If I can only get a couple of things done in a day, then that's what it is. Do you find that you also prioritize things differently? I do. I do. What's on the top of the list now? Honestly, so I was telling you before um, we started recording that I'm taking more time off of work, given the fact that uh, my doctors are adamant about I'm continuing to recover from the transplant. Um, So really, it's my health. I'm putting everything else aside for now. If it's not serving me mentally, And physically, you know, for a while it was okay, we're physically recovering, we're physically recovering. Um, But there is so much that is contingent upon your mental health that that your your body, I mean, our cells, we're all energy. And I didn't really realize this before my diagnosis until I was actually living it. We are just energy. And if our cells aren't getting the right amount of energy, the right rest, the right positive thoughts, if we're constantly giving ourselves feedback in our heads that we're not good enough or this isn't going to work, like our cells will start to feel that way. And then our bodies will start to feel that way. And I think that has been the biggest learning to me. But like I said, I'm still a work in progress. I still find myself almost falling back into that old way of life. And I have to stop and think and say, wait a minute, 
let's let's try to turn that perspective back to where I was following the transplant and, you know, during treatment last year. Yeah, because you said something interesting. You said that uh, you focus more on your health. But I think when you go through something that you've been through, that means something different than it does to someone who hasn't. Like for me, focusing on my health, and you were doing this too before, getting exercise, trying to eat right, um, you know, doing yoga, like like doing all the things that we kind of feel like are preventive and are partly, I think, too, designed to keep our bodies looking good too, sure. right? So when you say focusing on your health, that, and, and I think you just described some of it, it's it looks different now. Yeah, it looks a lot different. It's not um, checking a box anymore. I did so much exercise and training purely to check a box, purely to check a box. And I think a part of that too, as women, um, we see our bodies in a certain way and we think exercise and food will make us change and look more desirable. And I'll tell you what, the coolest thing about my body now is the fact that it was able to fight this disease. And I went from 130 pounds to 105 at my lowest. Like I've seen my body and I've seen my body come back. And am I in the best shape of my life right now? Absolutely not. But it's that perspective again of like what is healthy, what is not healthy, whether it's physical or mental. And I feel like before it was a lot of just this physical health and I I neglected the mental health of it. And there is so much in our own heads that apply to how we are physically and it's it's just so important for us to all like see how it's connected. And I, I again, like I'm saying, I'm still a work in progress. There's I remind myself every day because I sometimes I'll easily get in the mirror or I'll get on the Peloton and be like, well, I don't look like this person that I'm literally watching right in front of my face. And it's like, dude, hey, hey, remember, you just had leukemia. Your body went through all of this stuff. You had a bone marrow transplant. Like, chill out. Yeah. And and even for people who haven't, it's comparison syndrome. Oh, for right? sure. Like that girl, she looks so much better than I do, and she can spin faster than I can, and and I'm such a loser because I can't do that. Yeah. And what's wrong with me? And I mean, and I think women especially, we, I, I well, I can't speak for men because I'm not not in their heads, but I think women especially, we go through that a lot. The the com, the comparison for of, sure, which I've actually talked about with other people on the show. And I have to ask this question. I don't know if you're particularly religious, but do you feel like you, when when you were in the why me phase mm-hmm. of this, did you have conversations with God about this? Like why? I mean, was that the why me? It's like, why did you, why am I the one that you picked for this? Yeah, that's a good question too. I mean, I grew up at a Christian home, um, went to a Christian college you know, I think everybody finds their way and finds their own um, relationship with that higher being, whether it's with God or Buddha or ho- whoever whoever it is in the world, right? Um, and for me, I've always been still spiritual. I might not practice it as much. When this happened, I was never mad at God for it. And I, yes, I did ask why me. Um, but in my head, I know that I, 
I don't know. I mean, I, I consider myself pretty tough. I can figure things out. And I was just like, the way I just kind of handled the situation from the get-go, I was like, all right, maybe this is my cross to bear because there has to be something good that'll come out of this bad situation. And so I started to then turn that thought around. Like I said, I kind of wallowed in self-pity for a while. And I was like, listen, I'm going to beat this and I'm going to have a story to tell and it might help somebody else down the road. So that's how I then started to look at my diagnosis was it's not necessarily, you know, Dana got sick. That sucks. It's like, okay, Dana got sick. How is she going to face this challenge? Is she just going to lie back and let it happen? Or is she going to face it every day and, you know, scream sell suicide every time I got another bag of chemo put on my IV pole? So... And I, I definitely prayed to God more, for sure. Um, I, I And I took, you know, I had such a huge support system, and that they came from all walks of life, right? The people were calling it DK's army, and people, you know, believed in God. Other people just believed in, like, the universe and other different forms of spirituality. And, you know, I, I took from everybody's positive vibes. And one of the things that I – and I have certainly not been as – doing this as frequently. Um, I've been putting into practice as much lately. But – Every time I would lay down in bed from, you know, my first round of chemo through recovery of the transplant, I would um, kind of get into like a savasana pose and I would imagine this white light starting from the top of my head and just kind of slowly seeping through my body, you know, through my shoulders, through my arms, through my fingers, all the way through my knees, through my toes. And that was like this white light was... Um, at at the point of chemo, killing the cancer cells. But then once I had my transplant, it was rebuilding my red blood cell, my white blood cell counts. And that is what it was. I mean, it was medi- medita- meditative in a, in a way, but it was also just like I was visualizing this health. And I, I, I do think that if you can visualize something, it will come to life too. And that was a huge, huge I would say game changer in my fight against leukemia, for sure. Well, I have read a lot about that, about, well, anybody who reads about universal law and things of that nature, um, I read that all the time, that visualizing and doing affirmations can can change things for you. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes even if it's just the mindset, like your doctor said, to be positive. Were you doing any of that before? Would you say you actually came out of this more positive than you were before? Uh, before, I I wasn't. There were so many changes happening. I was not happy where I was at in my life. The comparison thing we talked about it was like, okay, you know, I thought I'd be married by this time. I thought I might have had kids. I thought, you know, I'd be this where this in my this at this point in my career, or I'd be living in a different city. And here I was, and I was very. I mean, I'm definitely my own worst critic. I think we all are, right? And so there was a lot of negative energy leading up to my diagnosis. And I don't ever want to say, I mean, we'll never know the cause. You know, I've asked my doctors numerous times, um, how how does someone like me get this? Never had a health issue in their life. And simply, I, I, got, I got the response of, you know, you, you had a case of bad luck. You had a mutant gene that went rogue, you know, that's all we, that, that's all there is to it, Dana. There's nothing more. I mean, I'm not a smoker. 
I, I drink socially. Um, I mean, everybody does, right? Everyone likes to have fun and go out and be with their friends. But it was never, I, there was never anything that would have, could have caused this. But the more I started to read, the more I started to seek this positive energy, the more I started to think. And I'm like, oh my gosh, leading up to my diagnosis, I was in such, I mean, I wasn't seeing anybody for depression, but I, I know that I was definitely anxious. I was definitely depressed. And I feel like that could have been, a contributing a factor. factor. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll never know. But I mean, but if you look at statistics, though, stress does kill in very different ways. It does. It does a lot to your body. We're, yes. we're finding that out. And the more I read about it, it's amazing what cortisol does to your oh body. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And it's not just holding on to fats. It's like you can feel the way your muscles are constricted in your neck and your body. I mean, the you know, being lethargic, not feeling rested. I mean, if you start to take out certain factors of things that you're eating or drinking and trying to get that rest or exercising, it's still not – you're not feeling your best self. I mean there there could be something going on and some of it would point to stress. Well, that goes again to something I've talked about a lot and something you said is about paying more attention to the things in your life. Like you said, you stopped working. Mm-hmm. If that's something, because I think for us, especially in this country and in this northeast area where we live in the country, everything is about work, work, work. It's about being productive, whatever that means to you. It's about getting up at five in the morning and doing a 10 mile run and then going to work and, you know, being uber productive at work and and then going home and, and just being Superman and Superwoman all the time. And it's not sustainable. We're human beings. We can't do that. Right. Yep. So I think talk to me more about that. Um, that piece of it for you is being more critical about the things or discriminating about the things that are in your life, whether it's work or a relationship or or just people that you're associating with that maybe don't have a good energy for yeah. you. Did you reevaluate those things? Yeah, and and I am going to keep harping on that term that I'm using for myself, a work in progress, because one of my biggest fears is not dying, because I I definitely saw death, um, not only in people that were on the floor when I was getting treatments that I found out had passed away, not necessarily necessarily from my disease, but other cancers, um, watching the pain of their families having to go through that. Uh, I actually got very, very sick last summer. Um, during my B cycle of chemo, I received part of the regimen was to receive a, a chemo drug called methotrexate. It's, it's um, used for a bunch of different things: uh, rheumatoid arthritis, cancers being one of them, atopical pregnancies. But you know, for my particular disease, it was given a large amount, um, and it you know knocks out your immune system, which is the point of chemotherapy anyway. And I ended up getting uh, sepsis, two different forms of bacteria, and then pneumonia because I was bedridden for like 13 days. And I, at that point, that's when I was, I started to give up a little bit because I'm like, this is, I've, this is the rest of my life. Like, I'd rather be floating in the clouds somewhere, you know, with unicorns and sweet little animals and just laughing all day long and eating grapes. And, and it is was- Is that <laughs> what it's like? <laughs> I mean, I didn't see that vision, but listen, I do love a good I lo- love a good grape and it'd be nice to be in the bright light. But that being said, you know, this 
the things that I saw, the things that I did, I was in this fight mode. And then there was this recovery mode that I'm still in. And then kind of there and there's it's it truly my diagnosis has there's been so many different phases from diagnosis to treatment to recovery during treatment to getting to the transplant to then recovery from transplant but transplant was then broken up into okay you have to get through the first month and then get to 100 days and then you have to get to at a cold and flu season and then you know I start to get my vaccinations again because my entire immune system was wiped for my new cells to come in so all the immunizations I got as a child are gone. So I'm going through the whole process again. So it's literally all these different phases and kind of then, again, that's physical. But then mentally, I'm back in the world. And I'm using air quotes here. For I love air <laughs> quotes. I do it all the time. <laughs> the bunny ears. And it's like this new normal. So it's like, here I am, Dana. Okay, sure, you, shoot, you have a buzz cut. You're a little bit skinnier, but like you can get back into it. And... I have found myself in so many different ways, especially when I went back to work May 1, just kind of rolling back into things like it was no big deal. And because I looked so well, not only did everyone else around me tend to forget, I forgot. And that is my biggest fear. I don't want to forget what happened to me because I don't want to be the person I was before my diagnosis, I was never a bad person, but I never, I don't know. It, I never, I, I was always thinking I'm very analytical, but I just never really thought from like a much bigger view. Now I see things. It's so interesting. I, I told someone this analogy the other day. I feel like I could never just get on a bike and go for a bike ride. And just be like, la, 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 I'm cruising on my bike. Look at the birds. Now it's like, oh, my God, what if I get on this bike and I get hit by a car? Or like, that's how you are now? Yeah. And I like think about this death situation. But because of that thought, I then my senses are heightened. And I am like, oh, my gosh, it's such a beautiful day. Can you smell that? Do, Do you like I mean, this is my favorite time of year, kind of going into the end of summer, beginning of September, the smell of the grasses. Like, I remember that as a kid. And as a kid, you never have worries. You don't have to worry about paying your bills, about what you're going to do for the rest of your life, who you're going to get married to. If you don't want to get married, you're just kind of doing your thing. And I feel like that sense and perspective of life is lost the older we get. And because of my experience, I'm almost able to to go back there at times, but I have to, it, it's a practice. I have to practice that thought. And, you know, again, I keep saying I'm a work in progress because I, I'll be honest with, with you, Christina, I've gone, when I went back to work, I mean, I, you get into the rhythm, you get back into the old, you know, it's, auto, it's like muscle memory. Totally. And yeah, and, I, and that was the craziest thing too. Like I remember one of my friends was like, Dina, you're so skinny now, but you will, you'll be amazed at how quickly your muscles will come back. And they did just like that. But it was just as easy to fall back into the same old practice of not taking time to breathe, not taking time to meditate in the morning, not taking the time to read a book or take a bath. Like there was a point in my life where I I never had a port put in, but I had um, pick lines put in my arm. And then they call it a triple lumen, which is where most bone marrow uh, transplant patients get it. It's like a, a line into your central vena cava. They've got three little tubes that stick out. So you could you know, get your blood transfusions, your chemo, and your hydration all at once. And 
for the longest time, like all I wanted to do was take a bath. All I wanted to do was just like, you know, when you submerge yourself and like your whole body's wet, you're just kind of looking up at your ceiling and just feeling the warm water around you. And when I was finally able to do that after like four months of having this thing in my chest, like I have made an effort to do that at least once or twice a week. And, and you appreciate it. it fully. Yeah. And it's a bath. You know? Yeah. And we take things for granted right. so much. Right. I mean, I feel guilty when I go to get my nails done and I'm sitting there like, gosh, I don't know what color I should get. And like, it's my biggest decision. Mm-hmm. And then, and again, like, I don't know, I guess being morbid, maybe people think I'm negative, but I'll start to think, like, how indulgent is that? That that's my biggest problem today. Well, it's your reality. Yeah. You know, that's your reality. And trust me, I do that too. And I actually, I mean, I have my nails done now, but I've stopped getting them done as frequently because I found myself, even leading up to my diagnosis, I would just pack so much into my Saturday mornings, do triple or double workouts, which is ridiculous. Go get my nails done, but me all the while being like, I want to get out of here. I want to get out of here. I don't want to be here. I just want my nails to be done. I'm like, this is supposed to be a fun. Like some people don't have the money to do this, or they don't have the time to do this. Like this some should people be have fun. way bigger problems, right, than worrying about their nails. So if I'm like, right now, one of my biggest thoughts, if it's not serving me and bringing me joy in any capacity. I let it go. And what about being present? Are you more mindful of that? I definitely am. I definitely am. But again, it is a practice because I can easily slip back in to the old ways of Dana and be like, okay, well, I have to do this today or, or, you know, I have to get on the bike or I need to go for a run or I have to get groceries. Listen, if you don't have yogurt in your fridge, you're not going to starve. Like, it's just like I always everything had to be a certain way. Like, I don't make my bed as much anymore. Sometimes I just leave the laundry piled up and not to say that I'm a messier person, if someone were to come into my house, they would still be able to eat off the floor. But there is like, I I don't put the pressure on myself to have to be like this so buttoned up and perfect all the time. Yeah, I think we all suffer from that. I I think I can say men and women, we all suffer from that. The the and the guilt. Oh, for sure. I didn't do that. And I didn't get you know, I have this 11 things on my to do list. And I only did five of them. What about the others? I'm such a loser. Mm-hmm. When am I going to do those? And why didn't I get that done? And why wasn't it perfect? And so and so is going to be mad at me. I mean, that whole dialogue, I wish I could make that go away. So if you have a secret, let <laughs> me know what it is. I mean, like I said, it's a practice. It's just when those feelings or thoughts start to creep into my mind, I just remember, I mean, I remember being cooped up in my hospital room and wondering if I ever was going to be able to go out. And when I had my transplant, uh, my day of transplant was October 20th last year, 2018. And fall is my favorite season. And so when I went into the hospital, it was like Indian summer. It was beautiful. Last September was awesome. So I was able to spend some time outside. But then I just remember staring outside of Hackensack, watching the leaves turn. And I'm like, what I would give to smell that fall air, you know, what I, whether it was rainy or a beautiful sunny day, what I would give to be able to go out. And though it's those moments, and it's not even necessarily nature. It's just like, you know, smelling the fresh sheets or, you know, being able to make my own avocado toast. I mean, when I was getting chemo treatments, my body was so exhausted that I remember sometimes I would sit on the floor and like mash up something in a bowl. 
because I was so weak, I couldn't stand to do that. It was, it took so much energy. And so the fact that I'm able to do that, the fact that I'm able to drive my car, be able to come here and speak to you about this whole journey is really, I mean, it's kind of amazing. I hope you give yourself enough credit for it. I hope because sometimes when we go through something, we have a tendency to go, oh, I don't want to whine. You know, I don't want people to think I feel sorry for myself. I don't want to draw attention to it. Yeah. Do you ever find yourself kind Um, of minimizing it? You know, I never did. And I had such an amazing group of people around me, like people from, like I said, all walks of life, people that I hadn't spoken to in years were checking in. Um, I... I mean, you know, I find myself, there are certain things where I'm like, oh, man, like, you know, again, having that competition inside of me, I'm not looking a certain way. I'm not doing this. Yes, I do. I feel that there's that competitive aspect, that comparison aspect that still lives on. But that's just human. But because of my experience, I'm able now to recognize that and kind of have a tool to switch it around and say, okay, I don't need to feel that way. And I shouldn't feel that way. Because the things that I went through last year and I saw were just so unbelievable and honestly crazy. And one of my very good friends, she said when I got sick and we were talking, she would come to visit me and she was truly just wonderful. She's like, it's crazy till it's not, Dana. It's crazy till it becomes a reality. And so to answer your question, I mean, I I never really... I, I told you that one time where I was like, woe is me. This is awful. This sucks. I want to be outside watching the fireworks. But then I just kind of like snapped out of it. Was like, because what can, what else can you do, right? What was I going to do? I mean, I and again, that happened relatively early on within like a month post-diagnosis and treatment. I knew that there was no way I could wave a magic wand and go back in time and change the situation. There's nothing I could have done differently. So it was like, this is this is what's happening to me right now, and how are we going to go about facing it? So take me a little bit through the technical part of things. So you got diagnosed, and then what's the first thing they do? I know you did radiation, right? So, yeah, so radiation was sort of the, at the tail end of it. So I had a, a chemo regimen called HyperCVAD, and it is just the acronyms of all the different chemo drugs I was on. So. And everyone's chemo regimen is different. And depending on their diagnosis, where they are and what stage, um, you know, some folks get chemo treatments outpatient. I did get some of those, but the majority of my chemo regimen was always at least five days, a minimum of five days in the hospital. So I had two cycles, an A and B cycle. An A cycle was, I think, 21 days long. And again, my first induction um, period of chemo I was in the hospital for 19 days and then they would do three weeks off. So then once the A cycle was complete, then I would start my B cycle. So it was then I went back in the hospital for five days. I would leave, make sure my counts were up, and then I would rest for three weeks and then we would start the A cycle again. So you have to be inpatient when you do chemo? Not not for all cancers. For my cancer, yes. And the reason being is because the drugs I were on were so toxic that they, I mean, the point of chemo is to um, kill the bad cells, but in doing so, it kills the good cells. So uh, cancer patients are very, very susceptible to infections. So they, the doctors, the medical team want to watch you and ensure that you're not picking up any infections, which unfortunately I did last summer, which was so scary. Um, and they still don't know how it happened. Um, 
but it did. So I went through two rounds of um, A and B cycles, which took me through the beginning of September. And then I was able, well, actually I, uh, my doctors, the drugs, we took my cancer from 98% to 0.25% of minimal residual disease was left in um, my body. So at that point, um, I... And initially, you know, I I was getting treatment at Morristown, but the regimen was a Hackensack regimen. So I had my oncologist here who I absolutely love and adore. I love my Hackensack oncologist and transplant doctor is phenomenal. Nothing but good things to say about them. Um, But all the while I was being treated here, it was a Hackensack regimen. And then when it came time for transplant time, they have a preconditioning. So it's, it's essentially almost like a... Um, what's the word? I would call it like this this bonus round of chemo and then radiation on top of it to like literally knock out like the last bit of cancer remaining in my bone marrow before they could insert my sister's cells. So during that time, it was in two two days of cytoxin, which is a drug that I had had before in my A cycles. And then um, I went through, now most folks when you talk radiation, it's very targeted brain, breast, stomach, pancreatic, I mean, you name it, any sort of metastatic cancer can be treated with radiation. Um, Unfortunately, because my cancer was a full body, a blood cancer, I had what's called um, TBI, total body irradiation, and which meant that for four days, I had two sessions a day, about 20, it it was 40 minutes per session, but like 20 20 minutes on each side, so they would kind of rotate me around. Um, and so I was like strapped to a stretcher, 90 degree angle. I mean, if physicists were involved, I mean, this is this is where like when I would meet these um, radiation oncologists and these physicists would come in and measure a body. I was just amazed at the science behind it all. I was like, this is just wild. Um, so once I had that treatment, then uh, I went, I mean, my sister flew in from Seattle. She had her procedure was 20 minutes they put her under general anesthesia. They removed about um, a liter's worth of bone marrow from her, which your body can make up like that. Like really? it's yes, it's really really crazy. So did you have to do testing to see if she was a match? Oh yes, yeah. We so my my your parents are always going to be a half match. It's called HLA DNA testing. Um, most transplant doctors don't. So there's twelve markers. Obviously, twelve being the best. My uh, bone marrow transplant oncologists wouldn't do anything less than 10 out of 12 because then that could potentially um, increase your risk of a relapse and they don't want to do that. So um, my I have two younger sisters. Uh, my youngest sister, Lara, who was like my little shining star um, through this whole experience, she was unfortunately only a six out of 12 match. So she's like super disappointed about that. I'm like, listen, dude, you've done so much for me already. You know, you don't have to be a full match. And then Sarah, who's in Seattle, um, she ended up being a 12 out of 12. Wow. Yeah. So, which is, I mean, I remember that day I she called me and we were just like both crying. on the, I was just getting out of a chemotherapy treatment, outpatient treatment um, at Morristown. And we were like, this is amazing. And, you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? And uh, that's what, when we ultimately decided, you know, my doctor's like, I don't want to wait anymore given the fact that your disease is where it's at right now, I want, you know, we'll give you a week or two and then you're going to come in and start the preconditioning 
and then we'll do the transplant. So Sarah's procedure was on a Friday. Um, since we are two different blood types, they had to then take her um, bone marrow and send it out, have her reds spun out of the bag. So it went from a liter bag to less than like a pint's worth of blood. So when when you say transplant, I think a lot of people think of like organ transplant, which is... Yeah, you just take it here and you put it there. Right. And it's, I mean, it's obviously way much more than that, yes, but like it's, it's so serious. And not to say that a blood transplant, a bone marrow transplant isn't, it's just not as, I guess, invasive. But um, yeah, I mean, the transplant happened and then I spent... Several twenty six days recovering from that. So I mean, I can go into the technical. I could. I have I a just, binder on this girl. I just have to ask you. It sounds like I don't know, maybe kind of dumb, but did it hurt the transplant itself? No. Although I did have a very strange, not an abnormal reaction, but it's just like a normal transfusion. I had you know my lines hooked up in my chest. Oh, so that's what it's like. Yep, getting a transfusion. Yeah, it literally okay. was getting a blood transfusion. That's all it was. But because when most people get a blood transfusion, you know, your um, do your markers to ensure that, you know, you and the donor have the same antibodies in your blood. So there are no reactions. Unfortunately, in Sarah's bag, there was still a little bit of her red blood cells. So when the transfusion started um, or the infusion began, I got my my blood pressure went from, you know, my normal like 120 over 80, and I think mine was a little bit less than that, to 180 over 130. I wow. had this crazy hypertension reaction. Um, and some people do get that. And it Could was, you feel it? What did that feel like? I remember looking at my nurse, and he and he had the door open. And I mean, Hackensack was just phenomenal with this. This is what they do. This is their bread and butter. And he was just like, how you doing, Dane? How you doing? I'm like, you know, I, I have this headache. And he's like, it's okay. You know, we'll breathe through it. Let's let's. But I didn't tell you that your blood pressure. Well, was I mean, high. they have you hooked up just like you know when women are about to you know deliver. They've got all the monitors on you. They had the EKGs on me. Like they, I mean, I'm locked and loaded. If there anything's going on, they will know. Uh, but all I remember is this headache, just really pounding through my head, and just kind of working through that for like 45 minutes. Then they get, were giving me the drugs, and at one point, I almost wanted to like rip the like the line out of my chest because I'm like, I want this pain to stop. And they gave me an Ativan. And then the next thing I knew, I woke up two hours later, the bag was empty. My best friend was sitting next to me. My parents were like, you cool? So Ativan. <laughs> Ativan, man. <laughs> I love Ativan. So yeah, it was it was um, an experience. So then, I mean, so at that point, it's not like, okay, done with that now. I'm cured. Let's all go home. Yeah. What? What or was no so next okay. steps were you know I go I go home well I was there for twenty six days I recover it's building my immune system back um, I had another bone marrow biopsy actually two so in total I had about eight bone marrow biopsies which are actually kind of painful um, and at that point on uh, December twenty seventh I was told that I was in remission. So, so what does that mean? So what does that, that mean? That doesn't mean cured, does no, it? No, no. This is what it means. It means that there is no evidence of disease um, in my body, and there won't be ever. I'm knocking on wood here. Um, but in order for a patient like myself to be considered cured of ALL, it's five years. So if, if I go five years post-transplant with no evidence of disease, I am considered cured of leukemia. So that being said, I'm not living every day like, you know, with the Grim Reaper following me. It's, yes, 
is there this like shell shock of like waiting for the other shoe to fall? Sure. Um, but there's also this fantastic, I mean, I also joke, I have so many different acronyms, um, but one of my latest ones is YOLT. You only live twice. <laughs> I like that. So we should get some t-shirts. Made. I know. I know. <laughs> or like some flat brim hats, but definitely a bumper sticker. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's still, there's still going to be a journey and I'm still recovering, uh, but I, we knew that. We knew going into it. It wasn't going to be like wham, bam, you know, this is it. You're cured. It's, it's. Did it go by fast? Because it's been about a year. Yeah, it'll be. It's been a year. June 7th was a year. So, yes, it did go by very fast. So it doesn't seem like it was an eternity. Christina, I'm still wrapping my head around it. I mean, there were days that felt like a century long. And there were days that went by. I mean, I, you know, and my plan is to hopefully put pen to paper and tell my story in some way. That was my next question. What's next for you? Yeah. So that's on my list. I've already started an outline, but I'm still kind of toying with what this is going to look like. Um, I don't want it just to be another cancer story. I mean, there are so many wonderful, wonderful stories out there. There's also so many sad stories. So like I want to, I mean, and during this like crazy tumultuous time, there was still so, we laughed a lot. Like there were some crazy ass things that happened that we just laughed. And I think that's what got me through a lot of it. But I, I do think my story needs to be told. And like I said, I don't, I think I'm just going to start to write. And I, I don't know, you're asking what's next. Honestly, life, life, life. I mean, that's a great answer because I don't want to start thinking, Five years. Oh my gosh, being five years. Present. Being but present. That's exactly what we're talking about, yeah. right? Learning how to be present. Yeah. So I'm not worrying about, well, what am I going to do now? Yeah. yeah. I have to say, I've been watching your Instagram and I really like the meaningful posts that you have there. And I think that you do have a nice way of expressing yourself on there. So I could absolutely see you writing. Is your Instagram public? It is public. And I was, you know, if you look, you can see that. I don't have a crazy amount of posts from from my story. Um, I did kind of just, like I said, I put the blinders on, hunkered down. I was not necessarily private about it, but the people that knew, knew. Um, But, you know, I think I just needed to get in my own headspace. And as the days go on and the stronger I get, I think maybe Instagram will become that platform for a part of that story. I mean, I have a blog that I started years ago that I could potentially revisit um, and tell my story, you know, on there in addition to this potential book idea. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's just, I'm, I'm really thankful that I could get up every morning. I know that sounds so cliche, but no, it's true. And I wish, I wish we all could yeah. do that. I wish we didn't have to get cancer to realize this. Yeah, I know. But thank you for sharing this really. I thank truly, it's a profound me. experience. Thank you. Yeah, this is it's great. It's, um, I think, very inspiring, at least to me. I'm sure to other people. I want to tell everybody what your Instagram handle is because I noticed the other day that you, you're very clever with your sisters. You're each the... So she's the we Dana K. We planned yes, it out. I like it. It's, I like it a lot. You could probably do something with that. But it's the Dana K, and it's K-A-Y. Correct. And 
I would encourage everybody to just take a look and keep an eye on Dana because I think you're going to be seeing her when she puts pen to paper, but at least follow her Instagram. And I think there's a lot of really inspiring quotes that you posted, which unfortunately we don't have time to go over now. But thank you again. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt, and I will see you next time.